ever wonder why we're here? Screaming, screaming, all screaming, 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 The world is changing. Fewer people engage in open-minded civil discourse. And big tech is censoring political discussion and challenging ideas. We believe that civil discourse is one of the things that keeps the foundational values of this country alive. And the only way to keep it alive is to keep talking. You're wrong! Truth is subjective. Join us for uncensored, unfiltered conversations about subjects like social issues, pop culture, and occasionally politics, as we try and discover together objective truth in a world that makes up its own. Welcome to Squeaming. Welcome to all you Squeamers! Uh, we here, uh, co-host Blade, uh, has taken over the hosting role. Look at me, Forrest. I am the host now. It hasn't actually done that. It's just we're doing the we're recording these episodes back to back. A lot of podcasters do it. <laughs> and uh, last, so the previous recording, I have gave Forrest a choice between two articles to read to him because I couldn't choose, and well, I still want to read both of them to him and get his reaction. So we're doing the second one. So, so in other words, you didn't give me a choice because we're doing both still. No, see, you've got a choice because uh, we got to do one first and the other second. All right, and, uh, okay, so last week I gave him the choice between a slightly shorter article on a beloved movie or a, or a slightly longer article on a controversial game. He chose a controversial game, which was The Last of Us Part Two. So this yeah, week... good game. Or, yeah, <laughs> or this time around, I got an article on The Lord of the Rings. Oh, On a specific scene of Boromir's death. And what it means. Oh, you see, the funny thing is, I know what article you're talking about, I just didn't read it. Oh, the Polygon article? Yeah. Okay, so here's the title then. Lord of the Rings revived soft masculinity with Boromir's tender death. Okay. This feels like an article that's uh, 20 years too late, but, (laughs) you know. How Peter Jackson's trilogy sold a brotherly kiss to make an audience allergic to male intimacy. It's one of the most striking moments in Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Boromir, impaled by three enormous arrows, lies dying in the forest. When Aragorn finds him, Boromir... Aragorn, can we... Aragorn? Aragorn. Oh, did I say it wrong? You said Aragorn. That's a movie. Oh, no! Oh, no, I I am... I I apologize to all the Lotor fans out there. Well, that's a movie, too, don't don't you Uh, remember? Yeah, Yeah. no, I I remember it. I never watched it. Neither did I. Same here. (laughs) Okay, and when when Aragorn finds him, Boromir sobs, confessing that he tried to take the ring from Frodo and that he fears the worst. Aragorn helps Boromir bring his sword to his chest, giving him the repose of a warrior slain in battle. And then, in an intimately framed shot, Aragorn cradles his fallen companion and kisses his brow. Boromir's death sticks with viewers near and old, unforgettable in its performance and its deep and its deep wells of emotion. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw the scene in an enraptured midnight premiere audience, I remember my surprise that no one laughed or quipped in embarrassment. It was gratifying and shocking to see that level of masculine tenderness depicted on screen, let alone in one of the biggest films of that decade. Mm-hmm. It would have been easy following the lead of other 2000s blockbusters for the Lord of the Rings trilogy to have catered to the times and taken a turn for the self-aware, self-embarrassed, and glancingly to overtly homophobic. But with the quiet power of Boromir's death scene, Jackson and company gave the hardened mainstream audience of 2001 a different idea of what masculinity could look like an older idea mm-hmm. drawing on a potential on a potent mix of arthurian legend to- tolkien biography and the on-screen mannerisms of the golden age of hollywood 
The filmmakers crafted one of the most heartwarming or heart-wrenching moments in the Lord of the Rings series. More than that, they delivered an expression of profound masculine vulnerability and, well, fellowship that had become all but extinct in the surrounding big-budget landscape. This kind of section, the making of an action hero. While there are many reasons for the shifts in masculine representation coming out of the 20th century, one seems the most glaring and obvious. A shadow and a threat to the mainstream had been growing in Hollywood's mind for decades. Homosexuality. As awareness of queer, of queer existence rose in the in the Chippet... Existence? Are you sure you didn't mean to say existence? Existence. Yeah. That's what I said, didn't I? You said existence. Oh, whoops. <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> 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 I, I, I the, both these articles have some fancy words thrown around, and as much as I like to throw fancy words, sometimes I actually don't know what I'm talking about. Do you know how I would have read that? <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I am the host now. <laughs> you don't yeah, talk to sure. me like that. Okay, sure. <laughs> well, go on, Mister Host Existence. <laughs> Give me your worst. Worst. <laughs> <laughs> Owing to in no small parts of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and 90s, the, the increasing visibility of queer activism, Hollywood became more and more skittish about representing closeness, physical touch, and emotional vulnerability between male characters. The box office topping action movies from the years around the Fellowship's release, including the first installment of the Fast and Furious franchise, the first of the Ramini, Rami? Rami. Rami? Okay, Rami uh, Spider-Man films, and The Mummy Returns give an overview of how adult masculinity existed in the popular consciousness. Masculinity meant male heroism, and the heroism of a solitary man. He might be the de facto leader of a team, but if he had equals, they were coded as antagonists, rivals, or at the very least, scorns of gruff and group tension. The hero probably had a female love interest, likely be the only top-billed woman, but no close male friends with whom he shared his interior life, and certainly none who he'd touch for longer than a fist to take to make contact. On its surface, Lord of the Rings trilogy seems to fit the picture of what could sell to an early 2000s audience. In contrast to the fairy tale meandering of The Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings series is very much a war story, and the war stories are traditionally full of the camaraderie and rivalries of men. But the movie trilogy, as a text, if not as a production, is as untethered from 2000s Hollywood concerns as new zealand is from any mainland and then this section the hands of a king are the hands of a healer in building alternative anglo mythos tolkien drew heavily on the images of masculinity as it exists in ancient and medieval sources he also took conscious inspiration from his time as a soldier in world war one embellishing the storybook knights and warriors of past past ages with the friendship and the close bonds he witnessed in real fields of battle this fusion creates a complex update to a well-worn archetype, and as interpreted by Jackson & Co. Company, mm-hmm. gives us a variety of heroic types and fellowship alone. But it's Aragorn and Boromir. But it's or- Aragorn and Boromir. I bear adhere. I can English. I swear. <laughs> All right, third take. I got this. But it's Aragorn and Boromir. I adhere more closely to the blueprint of a chivalric knight. More than any other pair of masculine characters in the trilogy, they, the, the two are studying contrasting equals. They're both of the race of men and experienced warriors. Aragorn is a soulful, poetic knight, valiant but melancholy, respectful, respectful of history, gallant and chaste with women. Boromir looks apart, laden with the props of a round table champion, is more brazen, propelled by the knightly desire to protect his homeland. Both are sufic- suspicious of the other. 
The quality in question is not whether the other is a man, but whether he is noble and worthy enough to be the leader of Gondor, the figurehead nation of men. From their, from the first tense introduction fellowship, Boromir and Aragorn are reflections of each other, reflections that contain valor, valor as well as darkness. Aragorn, an outsider raised by elves, doubts he should, should doubts he should assume his his kingly birthright. While Boromir's princely confidence and pride in his homeland makes him pray to the ring's promises. In his own ways, they are seeking a redemption that only the other can understand and give. But in order to receive it, and for Boromir's death to be semantically effective, they must first have barred their flaws to the other. Aragorn and Boromir have to physically and emotionally have, have to be physically and emotionally close without the self-reflective flinching their audience might expect this next section the legacy of the war film whether it was deliberate planning or unconscious association by jackson and his collaborators much of lord of the rings echoes the same on-screen language as golden age hollywood where masculinity is gentler but its credentials unimpeachable the classic war picture is a direct ancestor to the framing sincerity and unashamed touchiness of boromir's death scene and others like it it's a cinematic invocation that lets the films bridge the gap between the early 2000s audience expectations and Tolkien's more archaic references and tastes. By signaling that what's been being shown is part of the cinematic and literary past, the film provides space for an audience to engage with the scene on its own terms, not 2001's. It was in this, it was in this breathing space that an audience was able to take in the scene's many layers and lessons, Eminently flawed but noble, masculine characters in the Lord of the Rings trilogy are known for their tenderness towards each other. Tenderness is an action, the scene seems to say. Forgiveness is an action. The Lord of the Rings trilogy resolves the rivalry between its two classically masculine members of the Fellowship, not through manly contest, but through careful reveal of their mere doubts, worries, and fears for the future. To truly be a hero, to be a man, the movie says, you cannot bear your burdens in the poisonous cloud of solitude. That's how the ring seizes you. You must be brave enough to share your doubts, to hold each other close, and to see and be seen in turn. Grasping Boromir's hand as he dies, Aragorn takes his first real step towards claiming his birthright. I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. With a look not unlike relief, Boromir responds in affirmation. I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. This simple declaration says it all. I accept you. I recognize you in turn. Thank you. You are not alone. Okay. Yeah, no, um... So, obviously, I'm a massive Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, oh, really? I, I didn't notice. Clear, yeah, I've made that pretty clear outside <laughs> the podcast, but... Um, and that's another reason yeah. why, I, as soon as I read this article, I was like, okay. That's why I couldn't decide between one or the other. It's one of my favorite scenes in the entire trilogy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but not for the reasons that you think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I never, you know, funny thing is I never really, on- I-, I never honestly um, thought too much about the, you know, the kiss that Aragorn gives on Baromir's head after he dies. I never actually really um, thought about it. it. It never really stuck out to me because it's not the only time it ever happens um, in the in the trilogy, mm-hmm. um, you know, it happens there. It happens at the end of Return of the King when uh, Frodo kisses Sam on the head before boarding the ship that would take him away to the Undying Lands, as they called it. Yeah. Um, so, it, yeah. In fact, that was something that very like that Tolkien himself 
very much put in his books. Oh, yeah. Although it was interesting because <laughs> this was this was the interesting part. I distinctly remember in the Return of the King book when Frodo was about to uh, board the ship to, that would take him away to the Undying Lands. Um, in the movie, it's very clear that like Frodo like kisses Sam on the head. In the book, it just says Frodo kissed Sam. And, like, <laughs> whoa, what? <laughs> Where, <laughs> you know, where exactly? It, it's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, Tolkien was very much, um, he was not at all, like, foreign to the to those concepts mm-hmm. of, you know, as you said, kind of that gentle masculinity. But Aragorn is really good for that. Aragorn is one of the best examples of a good, um, you know, masculine man in fiction. Um, you know, like, he is a, a very skilled warrior, Um a very, you know, very gentle human being, a good lover, <laughs> you know, as he, uh, you know, fell in love with the elf Arwen and, um, you know, it was just always very graceful and, and, uh, gentle and patient with her. Um, he never forced himself on her due to the fact that, uh, they were of two completely different races that never got together. You know, that was, mm-hmm. that was almost, almost never unheard of, uh, almost unheard of. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, Aragorn was really the kind of, one of the, the best male characters in, in fiction because he had all these different very positive qualities that a lot of men should be, should strive to be. Of course they, of course they can't expect themselves to be perfect, but, um, Aragorn was absolutely one of those. Um, every time I watch Fellowship of the Ring which is often, um, I, you know, I tear up every time Baromir says, I would have, you know, I would have followed you, you know, my captain, my king. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why that part is so special is because throughout the movie, Baromir kind of scoffs at the idea that Aragorn is, you know, the, the heir to the throne of Gondor. He kind of like scoffs at it. He does, he looks at Aragorn and he just sees a, uh, you know, a dirty ranger. He doesn't see, you know, the heir to the throne of Gondor because Gondor is Baromir's home. Minas Tirith mm-hmm. is his home. Um, mm-hmm. So he takes that very seriously. And so he always, he kind of doubted Aragorn as, you know, the future king of Gondor throughout the movie until that moment. He has to hear Aragorn's affirmation so that he can give his. You know, when Aragorn says, I will not let the White City fall, nor let our people fail. He says, and then Baromir smiles and goes, our people. Like, he's like, mm. oh, okay, cool. You know, like, you, you take, yeah, it's like, you take my people that seriously. You know, okay, I respect you now. It, it is a really great moment. Part of, part of which wasn't even in the book. Honestly, oh, I would really? ar- I would argue that the scene in the movie was more powerful than in the book because it didn't have that that kind of affirmation, that sort of exchange. Oh, um, yeah. So I mean, that's why I always say that Tolkien was really, really great at uh, creating worlds and languages and races and all that kind of stuff. But he wasn't he um, wasn't uh, wasn't the best at doing. Uh, character, which I feel like the films did better, and they had to, because that's just one of the one of the traditional parts of storytelling. Oh yeah, you have to have a good story, and you have to have um, good characters uh, supporting it. You can have a great story, but if you have bad characters, then it, it all fails. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, this is probably going to be a short one, but I can always ask you what you what you think of it. But yeah. uh, you know, yeah, I always loved that scene. 
Um, and I can go into so much detail about, like, just all of Aragorn's actions throughout the trilogy and how he mimics that kind of behavior again and again. But uh, what are your feelings on it? I, I've only watched all of the Lord of the Rings through once, so... That's a shame. <laughs> it, it is. I should rectify that, that you, fault. You should watch the extended editions next. I know that <laughs> sounds like... I know that sounds like a lot. That sounds like quite a feat, but I promise it's worth it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, next time I watch it around, I do want to watch the extended stuff, so that way there is a little bit of new in there, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but, no, the extended editions are fantastic. But uh, when I read this article, like, one, I knew I had to share it with you because yeah. it's a Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And it focuses on a specific scene and another theme of, like, you know, kind of the soft masculinity as the article kind of uses. Because uh, I always just find the idea of how we define masculinity just interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I have found it interesting. And I was like, this article gives a good example. Because mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of... Cause, a lot of other examples of masculinity have at least toxic elements to it. So I was, so I was like, let's share a positive one. And, and I, and you know, you, you think, oh yeah, that was just part of my childhood. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good example that you have. Because <laughs> yeah. majority other movies have at least toxic elements, mm-hmm. if not are bad representations of how men should act in general. Uh, what are some of those examples um, that you speak? <laughs> well, okay, so I just watched a movie, or a movie, I'm a video from this channel called Pop Culture Detective earlier mm-hmm. this morning, and basically it's uh, men don't cry except when they do. Ah, and so he talks a lot about how, like you know, the adage of boys don't cry, boys don't cry, mm-hmm. and he kind of goes through and examines how through a lot of movies. Again, he's talking about general trends, not mm-hmm. necessarily every single movie, but a lot of movies have like men don't cry except for when loved ones die at funerals, and then a few other very specific circumstances. Otherwise, it's always, are you crying? Right. Kind of thing. Right. Um, or, I've, I've got something in my eye. You know, so, you know those, those kind of things. Yeah. Or, when men do cry, it's because they're, sh- they're, they're being depicted as pathetic in the scene, or they're being too emotional, and stuff like that. You know, the, that's kind of what he covers. And... Yeah, um, so it's just, so comparing that to, like, how this scene is portrayed, you know, I can't remember, are are they crying in that scene? Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, is uh, for Aragorn, he uh, sheds tears more so after Baromir dies, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. And that's one thing he kind of, that the guy in, covered in the video was that oftentimes when men, when men are depicted as crying in movies, they don't give, they don't get much time to like mourn mm-hmm. the usually next step is usually violence after right. that whether it be avenging loved ones or so on and so forth and very rarely do they ever cry with others mm-hmm. it's always, almost always in private especially when you get outside of like funerals or the death of a loved one like in their arms kind of thing right um and so uh and that leads to a lot of bottling up of emotions. You know, they don't share their emotions, and that just leads to other problems. And again, that's a general trend of movies. Mm-hmm. So I'm so when I read that art, so when I read that article again today, I was like, oh yeah, so this is a good example of bucking the trend and still having like this amazing emotional scene. Like as you as, t- as you talked about, like there was there is a lot of emotion that goes into that scene of how you know Boromir is basically accepting that. Uh, you know, they're kind of coming to terms with each other. Their conflict is being resolved that right. they had with each other. And it doesn't have to be uh, 
you know, a manly contest if I can puff out my chest better than you kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's not something pathetic like that. Blade, I've never seen you cry. Not saying that you don't, <laughs> that you don't at all, but um, why is this particular subject important for you? Um, well, uh, to be fair, um, well, I, I guess just in general masculinity, it is i'm just focusing on that because i watched a video covering that just this morning so it's oh, fresh sure. in my mind yeah but just the idea of masculinity in general uh intrigues me a lot because my quote-unquote dad i knew this was coming yeah yep oh yep <laughs> <laughs> i figured yeah, you're like I oh i want for, you to talk about this yeah, i was waiting for it yeah, yeah but like he basically fills all the checks all the boxes for uh typical mass uh toxic masculinity mm. boys don't cry um Typical military stuff, uh, which to be you know, there's there's good reasons some of that exists, mm-hmm. but like just that exists in all across the civilian life. Like yeah. me, basically, as far as how he understood himself as a man, from what I could understand, uh, that did not cross over. There was not much difference between military and civilian, um, and just a few other things I could list off. I really wanted to sit down, like ex- closely examine this part, but basically, so like the fact that he was basically the a terrible example of how to be a father or a man. Mm-hmm. This ex, this topic always interests me because it's like, okay, well, what is a good example? Right. And right. how media usually depicts it is very important because even if you don't think media is affecting you, it does. Oh yeah, absolutely. What are um, what are some things in media that you feel has uh, affected you? Um, I know we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, but like uh, the idea of um, environmentalism from Ghibli movies. Okay. Because, again, of how well those movies handle those topics. Right. And having reference for nature and understanding it and not just bulldozing it to put it in Walmarts because, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, money! <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but then you have bad movies about environmentalism, like The Lorax. Yeah. <laughs> Which... It's so bad, I wish I could just purge that whole movie from my mind. Well, and it's unfortunate, because I've heard that, like, the original Dr. Seuss movie, or not not movie, I'm sorry, the original Dr. Seuss book actually handles that that topic a lot better. And it's the movie that that basically is... It's so on the nose. Yeah, very on the nose. so on your face. And that's, and especially with, like, movies, you gotta be careful about doing that. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you're debating somebody the merits of, I don't know, solar energy or whatever, Mm -hmm. just a quick example off the top of my head, you know, it's fine if you're over the, if it's over, if it's on the nose, because you're talking, you're debating the topic itself. But movies are all about about writing a story, and so you can't necessarily do that as explicitly. Especially if you don't incorporate the topic itself well into your story. Right. And... Yeah, that's why it's always important to have subtlety. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm trying to think of ways that, like, ways in which media has affected me. I don't know. I, um, I, w- I would say that when media affects me, uh, affects me, it's more um, it affects the kind of stories that I write. You know, okay. um, because every story is inspired by another story. So it's like whenever I write a new story of some kind, it's like, oh, yeah, this story was inspired by this, this, and this. Um, As far as, like, what exactly, how it affects my life necessarily, I don't... mm, I would have to honestly think about that a little bit more. I think that in and of itself would make a great episode if I can, like, write all that down. Yeah. Um, But I'm just trying to think of a um, a couple of examples where just, like, where it's really hit me. Uh, Forgive Me Leonard Peacock by Matthew, uh, by Matthew Quick is a book that 
um, really had an impact on me. And it has, and it has the most disturbing premise. You know, it's about a young, it's about a young guy who has his um, his grandfather's World War II uh, war trophy, a Nazi gun, and um, a, a gun that he got from a Nazi. I think it was like a P thirty seven or something, and. Um, and he wants to use it to kill his ex best friend and then himself. Yes, that 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 had an, that had an impact on me. Not because I can relate to that situation at all. Never have. But thank um, God. <laughs> <laughs> never have. But um, I guess it's just his. Um, it was his feelings of uh, hopelessness for his own future and. Um, for me, uh, at one point that was very much me. Um, one thing that the main character, Leonard, obviously being the name, one thing that Leonard in the book would do to kind of, um, help himself, uh, help himself have a little more optimism for his future is write letters from people that he could potentially meet in the future, whether it's his, um, whether it's his wife, someone he works with his daughter, you know, just these imaginary people that he could, like, that he could meet someday. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool, too, because um, these letters were set in a post-apocalyptic future where, like, the nation has been completely flooded because of climate change, I think. Okay. And, um, and, uh, and he, his job is to man a lighthouse for people who've managed to get on boats and you know need to find need to find their way around but despite this very um just this extreme uh situation or this extreme setting uh he has a very happy life with his family living in the lighthouse um and this is all like what he's imagined in writing letters yes mm -hmm. oh wow yeah it, it was very powerful um and, and so that was a part of the book that just made me cry because it made me feel like because at the time that i was reading the book too i kind of i there were a lot of like doomsayers you know like I, I mean there still are but there were a lot of doomsayers at the time you know imagine growing up in your teen life you know hearing people all the time whether it's family members uh the, you know the news media or whatever saying oh no we're all gonna die because you know that meteorite's gonna hit the earth or whatever <laughs> you know garbage or like you know the mayan calendar predicted the world would end by 2012 or, or some stupid garbage like that you know yeah. i've become so numb to that kind of stuff now that it just like it it like bounces off of me like the cheese on that ufo and <laughs> the asdf shorts way back when on youtube <laughs> Um, but at the time I took them seriously mm -hmm. and it was scary because it just felt like the world was ending again every week. And so, you know, imagine you have these, you read these letters from people that you get to pretend that you potentially meet in your future, people you would really like to know. And it's still, and it's in a setting where the world is kind of ended, but your life, um, has not. And, um, I just thought that was really um, encouraging and um, inspiring to me. I should also say that, ironically, too, um, this book had a lot to do with Leonard trying to, like, feeling unmanly. You know, he spends a lot of the book feeling unmanly because he's done things that um, people would perceive as unmanly to begin with. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that that aspect of masculinity is absolutely in there. Um, so I wanted to kind of like insert that to sort of yeah. you know um, bring the conversation back full circle. Mm-hmm. But that was a book that had a massive impact on me. Okay. Mm-hmm. That is a piece of media. Yeah, books definitely count. Mm-hmm. And yeah. well, that's cool. Like now, I kind of want to read this book. It's an interesting one. <laughs> it's kind of confusing too because um the ma- leonard has a very fragmented mindset and to visualize that the book is broken up into two sections you have the regular text and then you have the footnotes at the bottom that are that are equally as important as the main text and the and the main text has those little numbers that um yeah. direct you to the foot to which footnote it is at the bottom of the book yeah that's how the book is read that is such a fascinating way to write a book because you're <laughs> yeah. like why haven't why 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 have i not heard about this book that's revolutionary it's pretty special it's a pretty special book i love it and and no you can't skip the footnotes the footnotes are required if you really want to um delve into the mind of this character Hmm. you know also there are key like key points mentioned in the in the footnotes too so yeah you you can't skip them Hmm. Uh, again that's just a way of um of visualizing his fragmented and disorganized mind Okay, wow, fascinating. Yeah. So, so that that's a piece of media that has had a, a big impact on, on me in terms of my own self-esteem, my own masculinity, uh, my future and everything. And I'm happy to say that, you know, aside from the fact that the world isn't flooded due to climate change, yet. I don't know. <laughs> I have my own thoughts on that. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, do get, I do have some of that life that, um, you know, Leonard was hoping for. That's awesome. And so when did you read that? Uh, I read it, um, read it about seven, seven years ago. So that, you know, so that's the book. Oh, okay. Uh, liked it so much. I, I bought it, obviously. I went to the, it was one of those books where I read it. And after I finished reading it, I was like, you know, it was okay. And then I went to the library again and I was flipping through it. And I just took it back home, and I read the whole thing again in, like, two days. I'm like, no, this was a phenomenal book. Absolutely phenomenal. Took you a second time around to really realize, oh, yeah, now now I see what you're talking about with the uh, footnotes. (laughs) Yep. A lot of pages don't have them, but, like, like this first first page you open up to, like, a bottom third. (laughs) Bottom third of it. And then, like, this book has literally, like, five words. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this one doesn't. This one, yeah. Either way, it was that's awesome. To, it was going to be a movie adaptation, uh, but here's the problem: it was going to be produced by the Weinstein Company. <laughs> and <laughs> as soon as as soon as Harvey Weinstein was uh, exposed for all of his, you know, for all the disgusting things he did, the movie was canceled. So thanks, Weinstein. <laughs> I would have way to, to go, see, cancel yeah, culture. I would have loved to see. <laughs> You know, not that, not that, you know, not that I believe uh, Weinstein didn't deserve that kind. Oh, yeah, no, but, I am being you know. totally sarcastic there about, yeah, like, uh-huh. things cancel culture on that note. Well, Weinstein little, needed to be canceled. I'm just a little disappointed, though, because if a movie can be canceled, uh, like, if a movie is canceled because one company can't do it, 
fine. But we live in a world where you can just shop for a streaming service to, you know, to produce it. So I'm just, I'm a little confused why they haven't done that yet. I guess the main thing, because, like, well, one, of course, always who owns the property mm-hmm. or the inte- intellectual right. Intellectual, intellectual rights. Thank yeah. you. Uh-huh. I am the bestest in Englishing. <laughs> That's why I can't say those words. You have a major in communication, boy. <laughs> <laughs> communication, not spelling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or no, not English. Right. But, uh, so I imagine it's, it's like they were maybe willing to take a risk on it and then nobody else was. And the fact Mm -hmm. that Weinstein touched it meant that it was all suddenly tainted. Yeah, it was tainted, (laughs) which is unfortunate because a lot, like a lot of things are kind of frustrating about things like that is like, that's at least in your opinion, Mm -hmm. uh, it's an objectively good story that would me, you know, it might be a challenge to translate into into movie format, but you know what? It's a bold. It's a bold. Like from what you told me of it, I'm totally on board of watching a movie about it. Oh yeah, like well, like it yeah. sounds amazing. Like it almost sounds a little bit like uh, you could do it almost a little bit like the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, where you go back yeah. and forth between reality and fiction. Yeah, and Walt's Secret Life of Walter Mitty showed you can do that in oh, the yeah. form in movie format. So it's doable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I imagine it's just mainly just like who's willing to take the risk, but since. You know, the Weinstein company touched it last. It's like, you, <laughs> icky. You know, Weinstein and everything around him is icky. Right. Which, fun fact, uh, Weinstein was in the Lord of the Rings movies. He was one of the orcs. Yeah, So I thankfully, Lord of the Rings hasn't been yeah. canceled yet. But I think this the article I read you earlier shows that, you know, everyone's willing really to look past the fact that Weinstein was an orc. And he was one of the producers, too. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, he, he had a lot of involvement in mm-hmm. those movies. And I believe in The Hobbit, too. But, um... Yeah, it, it's a really it's a really good book. I I just hope that it's like picked up by um by something else like Netflix or whatever because the the Last of Us was going to have a movie and um, Neil Druckmann, the creative director of the game, uh, was going to write the script and everything. But eventually the movie was shelved and um but now. It's going to be an HBO series. Yeah, I've so, been I've been seeing a few things here and there about yeah. people who have been cast. And... Pedro Pedro Pascal is Joel, yep. which is weird to me, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I guess just kind of getting on topic again. It sounds like this is going to be a short one, but um, so I, I mean, I asked you like um, what you thought of the article. Yeah, again, we just. Um, I think even today we need more stories that, um, you know, have a little more like gentle masculinity because Lord of the Rings, I feel did not open up the door for, for stories like that with with characters like that in more frequency. Mm -hmm. I I think that was a rarity at the time. Yeah. As the article Um, says, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a shiny bright example amongst all the others, but it it didn't set a trend by any means in that specific circumstance. It really didn't go anywhere after that, which is disappointing. You know, we need more characters that represent a gentle masculinity. And when I say that, I don't mean the solution is make them all gay or make them all feminine. (laughs) What? What? You mean don't go to the other extreme? No, it's like, (laughs) I, I mean, you know, let's have, you know, let's have some straight guys who are, you know, who have gentle masculinity. There are examples, you know, there are examples, um, I'm sure I, uh, you know, I'm sure I own them, I own a lot of movies, but, um, I don't know, I think Hacksaw Ridge is a, Hacksaw Ridge would actually be a pretty good example, except that was based on a true story, um, so probably even better in that circumstance. Well, sure, but you know the main character uh, in Hacksaw Ridge, played by Andrew Garfield, he um, 
he enlisted in the U.S. Army during World World War II, um, but he wanted to be a field medic, and he did not want to have a gun. Okay, yeah, I've, I've heard a little bit about this. Yeah, he did not want to have a gun. He did not want to kill because he went through an experience where he uh, pulled a gun on his father. Oh. And then, and after that, just swore never to do it again. Because A, he never wanted to feel that way again, and B, he was very much, um, his uh, Christian faith was very much tied to the whole thou shalt not murder uh, philosophy mm-hmm. um, or, or rule in the Bible. So, um, and that, well, that, but that's the great thing about him throughout the movie is that he never lets go of what he believes in, no matter what. He never at any point has to pick up a gun and shoot someone. Mm-hmm. Um, he, sticks, he sticks by his faith and he sticks by his own uh, rule throughout the entire movie. So I'd say that's a pretty good example. And he was a pretty gentle guy. He, was, he saved dozens and dozens of soldiers on the mm-hmm. battlefield. Um, so I think he's a pretty good example. Okay, but I... Uh... Either way, like, uh, you know, you, you point out, you know, he's an interesting character who doesn't just fall into the typical action hero yeah. stereotype. Like, they, like those two things make him stand out from others. Yeah, because he doesn't exactly engage in action in, 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 a, in a setting full of action. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, there, so there's that. Um, you know, that's, that's one example I can think of. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I'd be a little bit hard-pressed to say that Steve Rogers slash Captain America might be an example of gentle masculinity. I don't know I about gentle... I feel like that might be pushing it just a little bit. A, he looks like your tough, you know, masculine hero. Um, kind of what happens when you, you know, pump these blue steroids into you. Um, <laughs> that's kind of what happens. And then, yeah, he has that gentle relationship with Peggy Carter. You really feel, um, you really feel like just kind of just how kind, gentle, and and protective he is at the end of Avengers Endgame when he went back in time in a different reality to live out his life with Peggy Carter when he finally gets to share that dance with her at the end. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you definitely see that. Um, but I, I, again, I'd be hard pre- I He's a good man. Oh yeah, you know, like, he's a like, good man that sticks by his values the entire time. I feel like Steve Rogers is a good embodiment of like not of not any toxic masculine values, but is not trying to push the envelope of being bold in the sense of like we need a gentler kind of idea of how we envision masculinity that mm-hmm. isn't the that isn't the you know men men boys and men don't cry, we don't right. hug, we don't touch each other because we're not gay, you know, because right. because not not because. We can't have straight people, but more so <laughs> yeah. the idea of like, oh no 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 homo man like you know right. you know when two guys hug is like no homo by the way it's like why does that need to be said are we that scared Steve and, Rogers and Bucky hug each other all the time well and see that's why I feel like he is a pretty good example he doesn't push the envelope but he doesn't have any of those toxic values either mm-hmm. he's like he's like a good like middle of the road example I'd say so yeah I mean even Falcon and the Winter Soldier sort of jokes about it when. Uh, Sam says, and he had the talent of posing stoically. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> um, kind of, it, it was very much a self-aware moment of how yeah. stoic and epic he would look and oh, yeah. stuff like that. Um, so yeah, not a bad person by any means. Oh yeah, no doubt. Very much, like... a, very much a good person. I mean, um, in the first Captain America movie, he, he has great lines like, you know, um, I don't like bullies. I don't care where they come from. Yeah. You know, he sort he sees he sees the Nazis and he sees Hydra as like 
as bullies trying to, uh, you know, pick on or be violent with, um, you know, the people of which he shares a country with. Mm-hmm. And he he takes offense to that. <laughs> um and because of that, he's, you know, despite his uh, physical condition at the very beginning, he still wants to enlist and do uh, whatever he can. Yeah. You know, and if it means, again, being pumped full of blue steroids, <laughs> um, you know, that that's what it takes. And he's very much confident in that. When mm. when they thought the experiment was going badly and they were going to shut it down and get him out, he you hear him say, no, I can do this. <laughs> um so he, he has that confidence. He has that stride to do the right thing over and over again. That's why his story is so fascinating when he comes back, um, when he gets thawed out of the ice uh, 70 years later and mm-hmm. he's sort of, he's thrust into this um, into this version of the country that he can't recognize. Yeah. And he winds up... Um, he winds up rebelling against S.H.I.E.L.D. He ends up rebelling against the U.S. government. He flees the country after um, refusing to sign the Sokovia Accords. He sticks yeah. by he sticks by his values and what he believes a, a good America should be. Yeah. You know? he, he's, he's not loyal to the U.S. government. He's loyal to himself. He's very libertarian, <laughs> but, um, but very much is the type of person who um, many people say is what America should be. Not yeah. is more accurate to what America should be, not what America actually is. Mm-hmm. Despite having the name Captain America. Yeah. Well, and like, and that's why, and that I think plays helps play into the themes of like what uh, Zemo says a little bit. You know, like he embody, like he is not corrupted by this serum, and therefore mm-hmm. is like basically like. Oh, I can't remember, but, like, he's kind of talking about how, like, others want to be like him but fall short. Yeah. Because when you have, he's basically, like, idolized almost, mm-hmm. as opposed to seen for who he, for the flawed man he was. Right. And so that kind of changes how people view him, and so he becomes the symbol as opposed to seen as the man he was. Yeah, Zemo kind of said that he was, like, the one exception. Yeah. Know? Um... But another example that came to mind as we were talking was, uh, this goes into a series, though, is uh, Zuko from The Last Airbender. Especially oh, by book yeah. three, like, uh, I, in the video I watched from Pop Culture Detective earlier today, mm-hmm. they, he, showed, he showed a few good examples towards the end. And the one example he showed was when uh, Zuko goes to uh, uh, Iroh for forgiveness mm-hmm. in the finale of book three of The Last Airbender. And he, and like, and Iroh just immediately hugs him, like no words said, and they're both crying. And Zuko's like, "What? How could you forget? How could you forgive me like that? As after I after I I betrayed you like that?" And Iroh just says, "I I was not angry. I was afraid that you had lost your way." Oh, but I'm, mm. and uh, there's also when Zuko confronts his dad, uh, our Lord Ozai, mm-hmm. over how he treated him, and then by the end, in the like very final moments, like when. Lord Zuko says to basically the all the soldiers who fought, he says, we must build a gentler and kinder world. Right. You know, that's not the yeah. typical, you know, like, <laughs> you don't imagine typical masculine men being like, we need to make a gentler and kinder world. Kumbaya. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I'm just like, from where Zuko starts, like, his development leads him there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that that is a really good example. Yeah. I mean, especially when he has to confront his own emotions in book three <laughs> around the campfire. And I know I bring up this scene a lot, but I mean, having to 
when he says I'm angry at myself, that's not just a confession to everyone sitting there. That's a confession to himself because he's been keeping that bottled up the whole, the whole time. And it finally, and he finally was actually sharing those emotions with others because yeah. this whole time that was just leading to why he was so aggressive, angry at so much throughout the book one and two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, he definitely had that kind of uh, angry personality throughout the first two books, whereas like. You know, dude, who made you mad? <laughs> like, yeah, who's spitting your soup? <laughs> Just, I, I, <laughs> probably I, your dad. <laughs> I, I think he did more than spit in his soup for us. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Oh, I mean, yeah. But that's, that's the thing I love about pop culture, though, is that it's an ever-shifting thing. It's an ever-changing thing. You oh, know? yeah. And I think sometimes I feel like we start heading in the right direction only to kind of fall back in the wrong one um later on because a lot of you hear a lot of people go oh i remember when movies would feature strong male you know characters who didn't have to be gay or whatever and it's like and it's like you know storytelling changes storytelling evolves it always has it always will has you know it has over centuries and the ideas, the cultural ideas of what of what men are or what men are supposed to be, what women are and what women are supposed to be, that changes all the time. You know, some stories are going to respect uh, better what men are supposed to be and others won't. You know, that's just, that's just how it is. If you want to narrow, you know, like um, exactly what you watch down to... Um, I don't know, like the strongest, buffest male like characters ever, <laughs> like JoJo, Dragon Ball, or Warhammer or something. Fine, if that you know, if if you like connecting with those kinds of um, characters or people that look like that, uh, fine. Um, but again, there will always be very different stories uh, um, across the board as to what their perception of um good male characters are and i feel like that's the important that's like the core of why people always ask for my diversity is because of the fact that they that if you want to just do the stereotypical buff guy's story that is totally fine like that's where you have your uh jojo's bizarre adventure your dragon ball your or your warhammer 40k comes in mm -hmm. but if stories like that are the overwhelming majority then you're setting possibly bad trends because then start be people thinking, wait, is this the only way to imagine how a man should act? Well, that and, would be depressing. <laughs> well, well, and that's and in some ways that is unfortunately how media has worked for too long. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to see a more different takes on it. You know, of course, some people have not as good as takes as others, but it's important to engage with these ideas and see them in, in interesting ways through stories, not just sitting down debating. How should a man act? You know? a, I want to ask actually one final question before we okay. wrap up because it just hit me. Um, would you consider? Would you consider? Um, uh, would you consider John Walker from Falcon and the Winter Soldier an example of toxic masculinity? Oh, man, um, I mean he's he's a 
big strong dude, you know. Um, <laughs> That's big, not toxic in of itself. No, I know. Big, big strong dude with a you know with kind of who gets easily um, angry and lashes out at people. You know, violently hacked a guy to death after his uh, best friend died. Um, you know, is uh, constantly wanting to prove over and over again that he's Captain America, even telling Sam and then that senator, I am Captain America, you know, like, what do you think? Um, I feel like there's little elements of it here and there, because, like, what's interesting is that, like, we know, like, he, uh, like, how his relationship is with, uh, his friend, uh... (laughs) I feel bad. I don't remember his name, but I remember his Lamar. Ken- Lamar. Okay, because mm-hmm. I my first thought was Battlestar. Because well, uh, yeah, I, I know, but yeah. I remember he was only mentioned once, and and uh, Bucky was just like that's stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. why do I only remember that, but not his actual name? But you know, I liked how they showed that, like, even though he kind of fits that like more traditional role, mm-hmm. he still has that like obvious like he obviously trusts Lamar with his yeah. life and like shares a lot with him. And right. that's one aspect to like masculinity is like sharing emotions, like like toxic masculinity. At least how it's kind of imagined in the more traditional sense is that like men don't do that. Oh wait, this is another great example. You have John Walker and Lamar. They represent two guy friends just being guy friends. Yeah, doing and, guy friend things. Yeah, well, and see that's another aspect to it. Is like yeah, they can just be good dear friends who share emotions and tr- and trust each other a lot mm-hmm. and so I, I would argue that in that sense and in, in that narrow sense john walker is the opposite of toxic <laughs> but yet also yeah. being super combative towards those others uh you know it's like if you look at narrowly just itself that kind of falls back into that mas- masculine idea but like here I'm like I, I here I'm kind of like the more I think on it, the more I'm struggling to think how much of this is just the idea of toxic masculinity in the traditional sense for John Walker, and how much of it is tied into other stuff. Because like right. he obviously is like, hey, why don't we join the team? They join together in a team, and when they turn him down, that's when he's like, all right, cowabunga, it is then, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> yeah. so he does give them the chance to work with him. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm like, I don't know if that necessarily falls into that theme or not, because. You know the, the yeah. This is a tough question. Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if he's a character with depth. Yeah, <laughs> but, I, I um, mean, and that's the thing too. Like, like, yeah. I just don't know. Yeah, no, I, can, I, I can't answer one way or the other. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that um, I think that's because uh, credit should be given where credit is due for the writers behind the character. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I just thought it'd be a, f- a fun question to ask. But once again, you know, thanks for sharing this article with me. Yeah. It's always fun to, it's always fun to talk about pop culture. For me, I can just talk for hours about that type of stuff. I'm glad I gave you a good jumping off point. Yeah, for sure. All right, man. Well, close us out again, because (laughs) that's your job now, apparently. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Squeaming. Uh, I had a lot of fun uh, taking, taking helm and, 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 and hosting, but I will sadly... Go back to co-hosting now. Um, uh, Starting next episode. <laughs> <sighs> so, uh, if you if you enjoyed the episode, let us know. Give us a comment. Uh, let us know how we're doing. Uh, whether it be that there's something we can improve or we're doing something right. We're still, you know, in the very beginnings of this podcast. So, we appreciate the impact. We imp- imp- appreciate the inputs. I can English. I swear. So give us give us some feedback. Let it help us to help help us improve and help you have a better time listening to podcasts. All right.
Alright, bye guys. Thanks for listening to that episode, guys. Be sure to like us and subscribe, leave a five-star review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, or leave a comment if you're listening on CastBox. To wrap this up, I'd like to encourage all of you to have conversations like these with your friends and family. Share each other's viewpoints without being afraid of judgment. Share your stances on social media without fighting with other people. It can be done. You do have the power. And together, we can keep the art of conversation alive for future generations. So until next time, continue to learn the art of conversation, and never stop using your God-given right to speak.